Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you. I'm going to go ahead and pray again briefly, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us in your word, that you would lift our eyes off of the fallen world around us to behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, My wife and I have very different responses to when the gaslight comes on in our car. Uh, Her typical and wise response is to heed the car's warning that it's nearly out of gas and to pull into the nearest gas station to fill up the gas tank. My response is largely the opposite. Though the car is providing me with warnings about the rapidly diminishing fuel supply, I regularly choose to ignore those warnings, pushing my car to the limits. I honestly enjoy the thrill of seeing how long I can go with the miles on empty meter on zero before I pull over. Uh, This unsurprisingly has meant that I have run out of gas multiple times in my life. One time, even coasting into a gas station, luckily was at the end of an off-ramp on 64 West in Virginia when I was in college. Uh, Luckily, this hasn't happened for my wife since we've been married, but my instinct to ignore the warnings still remains. Now, admittedly, this is a lighthearted example of what can be a very serious subject, right? Depending on the circumstances, ignoring warning signs can have devastating consequences. Uh, Consider NASA's failure to heed warnings about the likelihood of crucial components failing during the launch of Space Shuttle Challenger. Or think of the radio crewmen of the Titanic failing to heed multiple warnings they had received about icebergs in their vicinity in the hours prior to their sinking. Failing to heed warnings can have disastrous consequences. And I bring this up because the passage we're studying today is one that calls us to consider the warning signs. So I want to invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 90. If you're one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find Psalm 90 on pages 496 and 497. I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it. And I also want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you because we're going to be looking often at the text in our time together. Uh, Psalm 90 is a somber and sober reflection on the warning signs that God has given mankind that tell us that all is not well between mankind and God. But it does also go beyond just encouraging us to consider the warning signs. It also encourages us to consider the solution that God has offered to reconcile mankind to himself. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us now. I want to invite you to follow along as I read it. This is God's word. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If you're taking notes, at its heart, Psalm 90 is a call to consider. To consider the warning signs of God's coming judgment and to consider the solution to God's coming judgment. Those are going to be my two points if you're taking notes. Consider the warning signs of God's coming judgment. And second, consider the solution to God's coming judgment. So first, consider the warning signs of God's coming judgment. I said that at its heart, Psalm 90 is a call to consider, and I want to show you where I'm getting that. I want you to look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 is really the heart of Psalm 90. Everything that comes before it flows into it, and everything that comes after it flows out of it. Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? His question here is rhetorical, right? He's not expecting an answer. He's saying, Lord, nobody considers the power of your anger. Everybody goes about his days acting like his life will go on forever, living for the moment, failing to consider that one day each of us will stand before you. And the power of God's anger that Moses is calling us to consider refers to all the warning signs of the coming judgment that God is sending us each and every day. And we see those warning signs scattered throughout verses 1 to 10. I want you to look at me at verses 3 to 6. Moses introduces the first sign of the coming judgment. And what is that sign? It's that life is fleeting. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Then in verses 5 to 6, he describes people like a piece of grass that grows up in the morning and then fades by evening. Consider, consider those images, friends. We are like dust. We are like grass. We flourish for a moment, but by nightfall, we are gone. 
life is fleeting. It's brief. What does James say? We are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Have you ever taken a spray bottle and shot a, a puff of whatever, whatever liquids inside of it into there? You see, it produces a little cloud and then it's gone. That's each of us, according to Scripture. But we also see another warning sign of the coming judgment, and it's that life is difficult. Look at verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Notice how he describes life. It is but toil and trouble. I don't know if you, whether you can sympathize with that today. I'm sure most of you can. Life is but toil and trouble. Now, he's not saying that there is nothing to enjoy about life. In God's kindness, we experience all sorts of joy in life, though. What he's saying, though, is that life is characterized by difficulty, by sadness, by sorrow, by grief. I trust that's something that all of us know deeply today. Whether it's problems at work, broken family relationships, or losing loved ones, or having good desires continually go unmet, all of life is marred by toil and trouble. Think about what Jacob said to Pharaoh at the end of his life. He said, the days of my life have been few and evil. Life had been so hard. Life is fleeting, and life is difficult. And you may say, well, well sure, John, but that's, that's just the way that things are. These things aren't any signs of any sort of coming judgment. But if that's what you're thinking, I'd encourage you to look at verse 3 again. Notice what Moses says. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Kids, would love to get your attention real quick. Any of the kids or teens tell me, where else in Scripture God tells a man that he's going to return to dust? Adam? Yeah, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced a curse over them and said to them, from dust you have come. Because you have sinned, you will now die. From dust you have been made, and now to dust you will return. But not only did God promise Adam and Eve that life would be fleeting because of their sin, he also promised that it would be difficult. Remember, Eve would experience pain in childbirth and marital struggles. Adam would experience marital struggles and thorns and thistles as he worked the ground. The fleeting and difficult nature of life are warning signs of the curse God has placed on this world for our rejection of him and point to the judgment that we will all face after we die. Now look at verses seven and nine. Moses draws out this connection between the brevity and difficulty of life and our sins. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. Friends, the brevity and difficulty of life are a result of God's anger towards mankind 
for our sins. Our sins are always before him. Secret sins that we think we've kept from everybody else, they are brought right out into the light of God's glorious presence. Even the ones that we've hidden from others can't be hidden from God. It's no wonder that Moses asks, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? He's essentially saying, Lord, why don't people see that the death and sorrow that surrounds us are signs of a coming judgment where we will have to stand before God and be judged personally, individually for our sins. Oh, to my non-Christian friends who are here, I wonder if you've thought much about the fleeting and difficult nature of life. Lots of people say things like, right, you know, that, that's just the way that life is, you know, but w- what God wants you to know today is that's not how life was supposed to be. God created us to live in perfect relationship with him forever. And when he created the world and the first people in that world, everything was perfect until the first man and woman chose to reject God and to reject his ways. Their rejection of him resulted in the fleeting and difficult lives that all of us are born into. And we all share in their sin because all of us have made the same decision and same choice they have. All of us in different ways have chosen to be our own gods rather than worship the true God. And so our lives are also marked by brevity and difficulty. And the question is, how does God want us to respond to the warning signs he's sending us? How does he want us to respond to the brevity and difficulty of life? The answer is in verse 12. Look at what Moses says. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He's saying, teach us to to recognize how how short our lives are so that we we would serve you wholeheartedly with the time that we have. And teens and kids, I want to get your attention again real quick. I know that when I was your age, I thought life was going to go on forever, that it was never going to end. Summers felt endless, and life seemed to just stretch on forever in front of me. But the reality is, kids, that life passes in an instant. One day we're here, and another day we're not. Life passes quickly. God has given each of you kids a fixed amount of time on this earth. And he wants you to carefully consider how short life is so that you would have a heart of wisdom, which is the Old Testament way of saying so that you might repent of your sin and put your trust in him for salvation. You don't have to wait until you grow up to serve Jesus. You don't have to wait until you get older to turn to him for salvation. Kids, you can turn to him today and lay hold of him by faith, repent of your sins, and know that God will forgive you completely for all of your sins. Alex Harris once said, the teenage years 
are not a vacation from responsibility. They are the training ground of future leaders who dare to be responsible, especially for the teens. As you're starting to think about your adult years ahead of you, I want you to think about dreaming big, about how you can live your life for Jesus Christ and do hard things for God's kingdom. I think it was C.T. Studd who once said, uh, only one life will soon be passed. Only, what, only what's done for Christ will last. Kids, number your days that you might get a heart of wisdom. Think about how you can live your life entirely sold out for Jesus Christ, serving him in what er- whatever area of life that you're in. But this isn't just for the kids. This is something all of us need to think about. Young or old, male or female, no matter what background we come from, none of us knows how long we have on this earth. And even if we live a normal lifespan, that lifespan, God says, is like grass. It's like vapor. It's like dust. It, it, it will be over before we know it. So I want to ask all of you, how are you doing numbering your days? How are you considering how you can use the time and the resources God has given you to serve him and to tell others not only about the coming judgment, but also about the glorious future that God is preparing for those who trust him? Think of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, and your friends who don't know Jesus. How much more time do you have with them? Regardless of how old they are, God wants you to know you don't have much time with them, right? How are you doing? Looking for ways to spend yourself, to build relationships with them so that you can tell them about what God is doing through his son, Jesus. Amy Carmichael said, friends, we will have eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. Friends, the time is short, and the brevity and difficulty of life are signs of God's coming judgment. But Moses also calls us to consider the solution to God's coming judgment, and that brings us to point two. Second, consider the solution to God's coming judgment. Verses 11 and 12 really function as a hinge that the door of Psalm 90 swings on. Moses' lament about the condition of mankind turns to prayers for God's help. And I think we can summarize Moses' prayers in the rest of the psalm as prayers for God's presence, God's love, and God's favor. If you look at verse 13, you see that Moses calls out for the Lord to return, to be with his people. Moses wants God's people to experience his presence again. Interestingly, I think we should notice here that inherent in Moses' request for God to return to his people and be present with them again is Moses' recognition that even though his people have sinned, God will make a way for them to dwell with him again. And verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses asked for God's steadfast love. In the Old Testament Israel, God's steadfast love referred to his covenant love for the people of Israel, his specially chosen people. 
God had committed himself to Israel, making them his very own people, and his steadfast love is his sure love that will not let Israel go. Israel's persistent waywardness and sins could never destroy God's love and commitment to his people. Though Israel was faithless and sinned, God remained faithful to them. This steady, persistent refusal of God to abandon his covenant people, even though they continue to sin against him, is a result of his steadfast love. If you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids, it's his never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, always and forever love. And Moses knows that God's steadfast love is Israel's only hope. Without it, they await the same judgment as the rest of mankind for their sins, but with it, they can rejoice and be glad all their days. Then in verse 15, Moses asks God to even the scales. Don't let our sorrows outweigh our joys. Let us experience at least as much joy as we have sorrow. And then finally in verses 16 and 17, Moses asked for God to show the people of Israel and their descendants his glorious power. This calls back to his saving Israel out of Egypt, which is regularly described as his mighty work and a display of his glorious power. He's saying, let the the glorious power that you displayed saving your people out of Egypt be shown to us and our descendants again. And then finally, the psalm closes with a simple plea. Show us favor, O Lord. Don't let our work be in vain. Don't let all of our efforts be a waste of time. Moses prays for God's love, God's presence, and favor. And in these requests, we see the solution to God's coming judgment. Where do we see that? Well, we need to take a step back and consider what happened to the people of Israel as the Old Testament unfolds. Though God had committed himself to the people of Israel, they were unfaithful to him by continually sinning against him and breaking his commandments. And for centuries this went on, right? Throughout the Old Testament, generation after generation of Israelites sinned against God until finally God sent them away into exile. His presence departed the temple and the people of Israel were exiled from the promised land that God had given them. And Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 would have been read by those Israelites in exile who could have stood and said along with Moses, we have been brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Because to be exiled from the land of Israel to an Israelite meant not only that they had lost the land, but they had lost God as well. And so they would have cried out with Moses, return to us, O Lord, return, O God, have pity on your servants. They would have pleaded with God for his presence, love, and favor to be shown to them again. And what we see in Scripture as the Old Testament unfolds into the New is that in the fullness of time, God answered the prayers of Moses in Psalm 90 by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus would come to bear the wrath of God for sin in the place of all who trust in him. Though Jesus had no iniquities of his his own, no secret sins that were hidden from man, he offered himself as a sacrifice 
bearing in his flesh, as Peter says, the punishment for our sins and receiving the punishment that we deserved so that we who trust in him could know God's steadfast love, his covenant love for his specially chosen people. And in Christ, we know God's steadfast love perfectly because in Christ, God no longer judges us on the basis of our sins but instead on the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So that all of us who've come in here today, who've trusted in him, but who who might be struggling with sin, feeling beat down after another hard week, thinking God must be displeased with us, finally God has reached the end of his rope with us, can hear again from God that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, hear this good news if you have trusted in Jesus. In Jesus Christ, God has completely removed the record of your sins. He has completely covered us instead with the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in removing our sins and the guilt of our sins through Jesus, that God has provided a solution for the coming judgment. And I want you to see how the steadfast love that God has shown us in Christ allows us to see Moses' prayer with new eyes. I want you to look again at verse 14. Moses asked God to satisfy them with his steadfast love that they might rejoice and be glad all their days. That's remarkable, isn't it? Moses has already said, all of life is toil and trouble. Yet he knows that the presence of God's steadfast love provides the grounds for God's people to be able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And those of us who've trusted in Christ have experienced the fullness of God's steadfast love. A love so sure and true that we can face the most extreme trials of life with an unquenchable joy because we know that the sufferings of this life are not the final word, nor are they worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to God's children. Not only that, but God uses the trials of this life to make us more like his son. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in the New Testament, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Friends, God's steadfast love for us in Christ enables us to face the trials of life with an unquenchable joy because we know that in Christ, God has provided a solution to our greatest problem, which is sin. But not only that, in Christ, he has also guaranteed that our sufferings in this life will pale in comparison to the joy that we'll experience in the life to come. I want you to look again with me at verse 15. Moses prays for God to balance the scales of his suffering. He says, let let me see as much joy as I've seen suffering, right? 
Let it balance out in the end. Do you know how God answered this prayer? God answered Moses and said to Moses, no, no, I will not let you see as much joy as you've seen suffering. For those who know my steadfast love will in fact experience joys that far outweigh the toils and troubles of this life. I am not just going to even the scales for my people. I am going to heap upon you joy upon joy upon joy so that in the end when you look back at life and you're standing in my presence, you will see that the joys that I have provided for my people far outweigh the sufferings and the toils and troubles of this life. The scales will not be even for God's people. They will weigh down heavily on the side of joy. I am going to provide abundantly for my people. That's why Paul said it will not be worthy to compare with the glory that is going to be revealed. And I have no idea what Paul's talking about. I think he got a glimpse of what he was talking about, but we know how bad the sufferings of this life are. We know how many sufferings Paul endured in his life, and that guy was able to say, you have no clue what's coming. You have no idea about the joy that's coming. Fix your eyes there and that this, the toils and troubles of this life will pale in comparison. God says no to his people. I will not just balance the scales. I am gonna give you way more joy than there is toil and trouble in your life. Even Moses couldn't imagine how God would far exceed his expectations for answering this prayer. Recall when Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured, who appeared appeared there with him? Elijah and Moses. Though Moses experienced the toil and trouble of this life and even died before entering into the promised land, he would in fact be brought into the true and glorious promised land. He would be brought into God's presence for eternity and would experience far more joy than any suffering he experienced in this life. And the hope of heaven And the joys, the eternal joys that are awaiting us in the presence of God are what enable us now to continue enduring the hardships of this life with unflinching joy and hope, right? It was the knowledge of the glory that awaits, that is what what Paul uh, caused Paul to say, that I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's gonna be revealed. And because the glory that glory far surpasses even the darkest trials of this life, we don't need to lose heart. Though our outer self may be wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't know what you're experiencing today. If you've trusted in Jesus, hear that. Hear God saying that to you. Light and momentary will not compare with an eternal weight of glory. That's awaiting all of us who've trusted in Jesus. The only way we'll be able to develop a perspective like Moses or like Paul on the brevity and difficulty of this life is by keeping our minds fixed on the glory to come. If we don't, the toil and trouble of this life may threaten to settle in like a fog and keep us from seeing that glory to come. 
It may even keep us from reaching that glory. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to become the first woman to swim to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. Uh, The weather the day that she entered the water was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her to provide her help if she needed it. Still, she swam for 15 hours. 15 hours. She got to the point where she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, but her mother, who was in one of the boats helping her, told her, you're close. You can make it. Just, Just keep going, Florence. But finally... Physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. Shortly after she was placed in the boat, she recalls the weather changing and the thick fog parted. And Florence realized that she was less than half a mile from the shore. At the news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. She was so close. But all she could see was the fog. Friends, we are closer to heaven now than when the service first began. Soon the toil and trouble of this life will pass. And the glory of heaven will be revealed to the children of God. So let's number our days so that we would get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Teach us to number our days, O God. Have mercy on your children. Return to us, O God. How long, O Lord? Send your son, Jesus, to gather his people and to bring us to be with him where he is. And if it's your will to delay his coming, help us to keep our eyes fixed on that day when he will return, that we will not be dismayed by the fog that settles in around us. Oh, keep us, we ask, in your Holy Spirit, for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.